Have you ever wanted to peek into the dark corners of history and see what you find? Luckily, you've come to the right place. I'm Teddy. I'm Katrina. And this is Grave History, a macabre history podcast. friends it's a dark and rainy night and we're back we're back there's been six brexits and we're back we (laughs) (laughs) that's how we're measuring the passage of time now is how Mm -hmm. many how many brexits there have been (laughs) how many times has boris johnson been to brussels Oh, I don't think he's ever been to Brussels, like, in person. <laughs> Not mentally, I think. Is the only only physically, sorry. Yeah. Other, <laughs> other way around. But yeah, so I don't remember, actually, the date when we recorded the last one. We've taken an extended leave for our health. Yeah, we had to take an extended extension while we decide the best way to move forward with this podcast and make sure we get the best deal possible. Mm, yeah, It's been great, it's been great. But you know what? We're here now. Yeah, we're here now. We're here now. Uh, And we've got a great tale for you tonight. I'm very excited. Yeah. So I was kind of annoyed because I started researching this in like pretty much when we recorded our last one. So like August. (laughs) And then one of my favourite podcasts, the last podcast on the left, actually did this uh, topic um, about a month ago. And I was like, oh, you bastards. Now it looks like we're copying them. Oh, you far more popular podcast. You've been biting me. (laughs) But I've got some different stuff and I've reached some different conclusions. So, you know, I think it's fine. And we'll have different opinions. Well, quite, yes. Basically, so um, in in that podcast, they kind of covered uh, the topic we're going to be talking about tonight, which is Borley Rectory, a.k.a. the most haunted house in England, is how it's best known. I like you're being very specific there that it's... The most haunted one in England. That's what it's called. I, I actually don't know if there are other houses that qualify as more haunted in Scotland or whatever. I mean, to, to, what are you doing? Why haven't you checked? I know Glam's Castle um, is possibly more haunted. I can't mm. remember exactly. How are we quantifying hauntedness? I think we're quantifying it by number of reported spirits, which I believe Glam's has more, and then that would be cross-referenced by number of sightings of said spirits. Okay, so it's not just amount of spirits or amount of sightings, it's kind of both. Yeah, that that was that is how I would quantify it personally, Um, in which case possibly Glam's has more, but I'm not sure. Okay. I would need to research that more thoroughly. Because I would have thought Tower of London would yeah, I mean it's. I mean it's not a. I mean I guess Borley Rectory is a house, so it gets the. Oh, it, get, yeah. it gets the. It gets the haunted house mm. label, whereas Tower of London is. Well, it's not a house, but is wasn't it a home? It has. I think people. I mean, people do live in it. I think the Raven Master lives in there, and the Beef Eaters. You know, they actually have a pub in there as well. Of course they do. And it's like one of the oldest pubs in in London. Of course it is. That is the most London thing I've ever heard in my life. I nearly went to it, but I was dead on my feet and I couldn't. I've never been to the Tower of London. It's too expensive. It is, yeah. It wasn't cov- it wasn't covered by the like Greenwich Pass, so I was like I'm not no. I'm not not going. I'd like to go to the Tower of London. It looks interesting. But um here's the thing. If you wanted to go to Bawley Rectory, <gasps> you couldn't <gasps> because it doesn't exist anymore. What? 
Since when? So the year that it, it actually burned down was 1939. Oh, uh, okay. So just as the war so was starting. 80 years ago this year. Huh. Same age as the film The Wizard of Oz, which I watched last night. That's weird. No, it isn't. It's a great No, not film. that you watched it, just that it's the same age. Oh, well, it's the same age. <laughs> huh. But yeah, so this Haunted House case, I've enjoyed it for a, a really long time because it was in... The first book I had about, you know, hauntings, ghosts, the supernatural, which was the Usborne book. Oh, God, I can't remember what it's actually called. The Usborne book of something or other. And you know Usborne books are always quality, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is one of them. It also had the hairy hands of Dartmoor. <gasps> you mean the hairy hands that we covered in uh, our very first episode? That is where I became familiar with them. But this is the ghost story. It's like the mm. haunted house story. So I'd like to begin, if I may, with an excerpt from the Suffolk and Essex Free Press from June 13th, 1929. My birthday. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't my birthday then, but it has since become my birthday. <laughs> it can be. Yeah. I mean, you've existed since time began, as we all know. Well, basically, yeah. Anyway, this paper ran a piece on Borley Rectory, mm-hmm. which I'll go into a bit more. But for the time being, let's say, it has built in 1862 in the village of Borley by the Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull for his family to live in. Now, the Bulls were no longer living in there by this time. And this was the piece that was published. <clears throat> Shut up. <laughs> Tradition has it, and it is generally accepted by the inhabitants, although with a certain amount of scepticism that, in the Middle Ages, there was a great monastery or convent where the rectory still stands. Once upon a time, a nun became acquainted with a coachman. The acquaintance ripened into romance, and they went to meet in secret amongst the trees near the convent. Eventually, they decided to elope, and the coachman called to his aid another who prepared a coach drawn by two bay horses. This intended elopement was, however, discovered. The coachman was seized and the nun taken back to the convent from which she never again reappeared. As for the coachman, they were tried and beheaded. (gasps) Since at long intervals, it has been reported that the nun has been seen walking in the shadow of the trees and that two headless coachmen together with an old-time coach drawn by two bay horses has been observed riding through the parish. It is an extraordinary fact that the late H.F. Bull often spoke of the remarkable experience he had one night when walking along the road outside the rectory. He heard the sound of horses' hooves. Upon looking round, he saw an old-time coach driven by two headless men. Ooh. Now, three days earlier than this, uh, the Daily Mirror had run um, a story, which, mm. you know, obviously had much bigger circulation, Yeah. Uh, going into a little, little bit more depth, and they claimed, it is a building erected on the part of the site of a great monastery, which in the Middle Ages was the scene of a gruesome tragedy. A groom at the monastery fell in love with a nun at a nearby convent runs the legend, and they used to hold clandestine meetings in the woods, on which the rectory now backs. Then one day, they arranged to elope, and another groom had a coach waiting in the road outside the wood, so they could never escape. From this point, the legend varies. Some say the nun and her lover quarrelled, and that he strangled her in the wood, and was caught and beheaded with the other groom for his villainy. The other version is that all three were caught by the monks, two grooms beheaded, and the nun buried alive in the walls of the monastery. Jesus. Now, the word for that is immurement. Oh, I didn't know it had a word. Executing someone by walling them up in live, exactly. Cask of a Montiado style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in the same year, 1929, the, the rectory became known as the most haunted house in England. This is some haunted mansion nonsense. Mm. And it even looked like the haunted mansion. I have seen pictures, and I do agree. I'm referring to specifically to the haunted mansion of course in uh, Disney World 
uh, Liberty yeah. Square, and also the one in Tokyo, which is pretty much a carbon copy of that one, mm-hmm. uh, with mm-hmm. that kind of red brick look. Um, I was, yes. I was, I went to Disney World like a month ago, and I it was know, great. I'm so jealous. It was perfect. I went on the Haunted Mansion twice, and I had the best time. <sighs> you know, for research, because I was researching Bully Rectory. Of course, of course. Uh-huh, uh-huh, you had to compare uh-huh. it to Walt Disney World's Haunted Mansion. Absolutely, absolutely. So jealous. So, basically, this house, Reverend Bull uh, b- built it, as I said before, in 1862, for his 14 children. Fucking hell. As well you might. <laughs> it was a rambling place with 35 rooms plus a cellar and an attic. And you can see photos of the house I said before. And its site nowadays, plus some digital recreations of what it would have looked like on harrypricewebsite.co.uk, which I recommend checking out and was a great resource for this episode. And I like visual accompaniment, and so I really recommend you do look up pictures of it while we read along. So the the legend was that this house was built on ground that already had some serious, what I'm going to call bad vibes. Mm. There was allegedly a second tragic love story coming from the 17th century when a French nun, a different nun, named uh, Marie left her order in Le Havre to come to the nunnery where Borley Rectory would one day stand. Here she met, uh, married a man named Henry Waldengrave, and the Waldengraves are like a famous old English family who who, de- who definitely did exist. And he yeah. owned a manor on the site of Borley Rectory. Now, in an argument or a fit of rage, uh, apparently unprompted, he strangled her and buried her in where the basement would be. Right. Yes. So those are kind of the two stories that were attributed to Borley Rectory. I was going to say, do you think there's there's some like crossover maybe with the, the story that the Mirror told? It sounds like they maybe conflated both stories. Well, we're going to get into that a wee bit later on. Uh, okay, I will hold on to that thought. Uh, just rest assured, the Phantom Nun is kind of one of the main icons of Borley Rectory. Mm. Who, and I'll talk a, a bit more about her in a minute. Yay. Which is a pretty good, you know, ghostly apparition. Mm. So Borley Rectory itself, it's this red brick Victorian building. It would have probably been considered pretty ugly at the time it was built. I mean, it's beautiful to me because... I want to make sweet, tender love to all Victorian architecture with absolutely no exceptions. <laughs> I like to kind of... I was thinking about like the iconography of the haunted house in popular media and the mm. kind of archetypal haunted house, which is pretty much inspired by the American Victorian type, uh, style. Mm. You know, those houses that were called Victorians, which had come sort of obsolete by the 30s, 40s, 50s. There's a really good article about this, actually. I think it's on JSTOR's blog, which is basically about why we think of haunted houses as being these old sort of Victorian buildings. Yeah, we really do. But yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to be absorbed in the kind of iconography of the house as you learn the story. And the, the Usborne book also had a cutaway diagram of the house showing where a lot of the activity took place. And I will try to Ooh. share it on like on Instagram or something because that's what I see in my head when I think about Borley. Plus, I really, really like cutaway diagrams of buildings. Yes. They're just great. They make it so much easier to understand yeah. the building. I just That and blueprints. I love a good blueprint. Mm. Oh, yummy blueprint. What? I said yummy blueprint fine i'll allow it now (laughs) one of the investigators gave a very kind of uh sydney glanville was his name he gave a very kind of um evocative portrait of it in his account uh describing it as Mm. almost entirely surrounded by dark trees which overshadowed it and had a very darkening and depressing effect on the house both inside and out it was substantially built of brick and stone all the doors were thick and heavy the floors were of heavy wood in some parts and stone in other rooms Some of the windows, such as the dairy, the kitchen, scullery and passages, were iron-barred, giving that part of the house a rather prison-like appearance, 
I said the right word there. I only heard the right word, don't Thank worry. Because you, you didn't say the wrong didn't one. Say the wrong word. So, as for ghostly events, they started pretty mm. much as soon as the family, you know, uh, the Reverend and his 14 kids, moved into their freshly built house. Was there a mum as well, or had she died in the process of creating? Uh, R.I.P. You know, the mother actually doesn't come up in the literature, in, um, well, not, not in, um, might as well talk about my sources. So a lot of the information here comes from the, the words of the chief investigator, Harry Price, who we will talk about later. Mm-hmm. His books, The Most Haunted House in England, 1940, and The End of Borley Rectory, which, 1946. The rest comes from various other publications that examine Borley I had lying around. I've got one next to me right now. It's, it's called Great Mysteries of the 20th Century by Reader's Digest. And I've got a ton of other books that just talk about it as well, um, including a chapter by Colin Wilson in his book Poltergeist, mm-hmm. the Osborne book, and websites as well. Uh, Harry Price website, as I mentioned before, a very useful mm. resource with lots of primary resources. It's largely pro Harry Price. And I'm going to get into this again later when we talk about Harry Price. I'm wrapped with suspense. Wonderful. Uh, another. <laughs> <laughs> you should be. Another website, mm-hmm. foxearth.org, which is a collection of essays by Andrew Clark for the Fox Earth and District Historical Society, where you can read the parish records for Borley. And this, this website takes a more sceptical stance. Both are really great reading, and I recommend them if you're interested in the case, because I cover like less than a tenth of the information that's on these websites. It's very thorough. Mm. Now, so let's talk about some hauntings. Yes. We're going to go right back to the start. Um, now, as legend has it, the large bull family encountered numerous ghosts during their tenancy. Phantom footsteps in and the like, you know, the uh, door slamming noises. Oh, yeah, like. yeah. The good shit. Haunting didn't really kick into gear until around the turn of the century, though. The original owner, Henry Bull, died in 1892 mm-hmm. in the room of the house where a lot of haunted activity happened. It was called the Blue Room, it was one of the bedrooms. Over the library and overlooks the part of the garden known as the Nun's Walk. As yes, <laughs> gee, I wonder what ghost could be around there. The coachman, the headless coachman, two headless coachmen. Mm. Yeah, Henry Bull died in that room, as did his wife. And then his son, Harry, Harry Bull, took over as rector. Mm-hmm. And skipping forward a bit, he would also die in the Blue Room in 1927. Jesus. Yeah, I know. So. <laughs> That's got some bad vibes, huh? Yeah, totally. I don't know what it is about the blue room, but the you know the mm. phrase sounds sounds haunted. It does. This is after this kind of um, you know, you see it in a lot of bigger houses where they tend to name a house after the color or theme of the room. Mm-hmm. So you might have like you know the Chinese room. Or... Yeah, they do that in a lot of stately homes, don't they? Yes. And you know what? A lot of stately homes are haunted. So maybe that's why we conflate like names like the blue room. Or the red room, or the pink room, not the red room. That is a genuine thing. I was going to say, the, the red room is a... is, is what's, what's that from? Is it's, that from Jane Eyre? Uh, no, I thought it was from Russian, like, spy stuff. Oh, it might I, it might be, but mm. what, I think that was the name of the room that she was scared of when she was a kid in um, Jane Eyre. Yeah, I think you might be right. But yeah, you know, the Chinese room, the bird room, whatever... If it's haunted, yeah. they go, ah, oh, yes, the haunted room in this house is the blur room. So it makes sense to, you know, equate that kind of naming... <laughs> This is the death room. Don't worry. Death is just a metaphor for change. (laughs) It's not a scary room at all. Me reading tarot for anyone. No, no, no. Death is good. Death is good. Come back. What's that? The lightning struck tower? Oh, dear. Mm, The ten of swords, you say? Hmm. Maybe it's not so good. It's it's important that you're about to buy ten swords. (laughs) Yes, tell me about... 
the blue room. I will. But I'm going to tell you first about the nun. Yes, please. So she she shows up in pretty much all of the early reports. Mm -hmm. Now, this ghost, the nun, was allegedly seen usually at dusk by various members of the family and by guests who didn't know about the legend. Mm. Now, she was pretty much always seen in the garden. Mm -hmm. Um, She was usually seen entering from an adjoining field, stepping over the stone garden wall, which I'm guessing was quite low, Mm -hmm. and walking across the lawn, usually in, like, the same sort of path, hence the nun's walk. She was once apparently seen staring into a window. That's horrible. That is horrible, I agree. I hate anything about things staring into windows. I think we had this in the Alien episode as well. We did, yeah, yeah, we did. It fucks me up. (laughs) Especially if you're on the second floor. (sighs) Was this a second floor sighting? I believe it was on the ground floor. Okay, that that's vaguely better. I think maybe the conservatory. Mm, mm, or something like that. I have like one that. of those. Conservatories, they're ju- I mean, they're just like the most cursed room in the house, like by, yeah, by default, they because are. they're damn, yeah. you know, you're in there, you're watching TV maybe, and you're like, anyone can see me right now in my little glass dome. I'm like an animal in a zoo to them. Anyone can see me here in my pants watching the third episode of Antiques Road Trip in a row. Antiques Roadshow, really. No, Road Trip. Antiques Road Trip. Yeah, what? it's like the the valuers from Antiques Roadshow and like blog it, not blog it. What's it? Flog it. Flog it. There we go. <laughs> and uh, the other one where they they have teams. Yeah, it's them, but like going on a road trip around the country and buying antiques and trying to win at selling antiques. I'm judging you for that, and I actively it's very fun. have been seeking out episodes of Take Me Out for the last three nights. <laughs> I love it. My my viewing habits are The Taskmaster, (laughs) Uh Antiques Road Trip, Homes Under the Hammer, and QI. Oh, that's pretty bad. Oh no. Yeah, I am 60 years old. Mine's more like Take Me Out, Don't Tell the Bride. Oh jeez. I love Don't Tell the Bride, oh my god. No! And just like as many terrible Hallmark Christmas movies as I can shove down my gullet. (laughs) I'm serious. Oh, you can add Vera. To mine as well. You are 60. I am. That's extraordinary. I I think my... I love Vera. You just described my mum's, like, ironing schedule (laughs) programme. I'm just very happy to sit and watch garbage. I know. Anyway. I know. Back to the the nun ghost. I I haven't forgotten this, but we we can... Now that I've outed myself. (laughs) Now... So the reports about her are a wee bit all over the place. Um, some say the nun was seen before the rectory was built. Others say she wasn't seen until the 30s and all the stories are made up. Uh, more on that later. That's a little spoiler for later. <laughs> Let's start with a report by Sidney H. Glanville, one of Price's mo- most faithful assistants, who claimed to have spoken with the Bull family. So reportedly, in June of 1900, three of the Bull sisters returning from a garden party encountered the ghostly nun. She stood approximately 40 yards away in the garden, visible for the first time in broad daylight. Uh A fourth sister was summoned to witness the the event and they watched the nun walk towards the nearby woods, disappearing as she went. So this is one of like the most substantial stories about the nun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's rare that you get ghost sightings kind of in the daylight. Yeah, I mean, it... uh, This... Sighting doesn't go into detail over whether she was opaque or whether she was solid, but it she she mm. she seemed to fade away. I, is kind of the direction it's yeah. taking, which you know leans towards 
her being a bit less solid and like recognizably mm. a spirit. But again, we're going to talk about this sighting more later. Now, uh, Walter Bull, who was Henry's other son and the second Reverend Harry's brother, he reported persistently hearing footsteps following him up the lane. And also one instant where he was hiding behind a tree to try and catch who was following him, only to be met mm. by absolutely no one. Oh, that. Ooh. Yes. Don't like that. Two of the bull siblings, Harry again and Ethel, both reported seeing what they called a grotesque little figure, <laughs> a tiny old man who would approach them on the lawn, Mm-mm. raise one arm and then run away. Right. I, yeah. What? And I was trying to get a lot more information on this grotesque little figure, but there isn't a lot out there. (laughs) I mean, what more can you say about a grotesque little figure who Nazi salutes you and runs away? I imagine him, like, like he's dabbing or something. I didn't picture picture a Nazi salute. Oh, it's just because he said they raised, it raised one arm. Yeah, the half dab. Ah, uh, the the half-hearted. Yeah, you know when you when you dab with one arm because your other arms your your other arms in a sling because you've justifiably been beaten up for dabbing. <laughs> I, presume... I wouldn't know that because I don't dab. Do you dab, Katrina? Um, Is this your coming out? <laughs> I don't have to answer that question <laughs> without a lawyer present. <laughs> Yeah, so a lot of the other hauntings were pretty typical of a, of a haunted house, uh, especially, um, so lots were heard in the bedroom corridors, mm. and these were footsteps and phantom knocking on the doors. Ooh, good, good classic haunted house stuff. On several occasions, one of the sisters was awoken by a slap to the face that came from no one. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> That's that's one of her sisters going. Oh yeah, it was a ghost. It was a ghost. Yeah, I mean, if you mm-hmm. if you could like deck your sister in the face and get away with it, would you? <laughs> yes, I would. Absolutely. No, that's, that's really mean. Actually, <laughs> I feel bad now. Um, but that that does seem like kind of a sibling thing. It does. It does. But yeah, there was a lesser known apparition who is reported a bit more sparingly than the others, um, of a tall man in dark clothes who was mm. apparently seen around the house several times. Okay. Loud crashes were heard in empty rooms. So what we have here is kind of poltergeist activity, mm. which, I mean, you're familiar with how poltergeist activity generally works, right? Yeah, it tends to be violent and very visual. And perhaps most importantly, it tends to have a focus. Yeah, like focus on a person. Yeah, it tends or... to revolve around one person who is usually young mm. and usually female. Yeah. Yes. Strange that. And there's all sorts of, you know, people have proposed all sorts of reasons as to why this might be. Mm. But yeah, we, di- we don't have a focus here at the moment, despite there being, you know, women present in the house. Mm. We've just got a kind of a nice cocktail of hauntings going on. Yeah. But to be honest... These hauntings were kind of more of a quirk, apparently, and it it said that Henry Bull had built a conservatory where he could observe the Phantom Nun's perambulations and smoke cigars. (laughs) I love this guy! Now, the Bulls would not stay there forever. Um, As I said, uh, Harry Bull died in 1927, and this place was a rectory. Mm. So I didn't really talk about what a rectory is pray tell so have you have you come across the term before i've heard of it but i and i know it's kind of a building that's usually attached to or near a church that's pretty much it it's basically where the reverend lives Uh, okay yeah like it's built for him and that was my favorite part of the last podcast episode as they get so hung up on the word rector (laughs) because it sounds like um, it does a little bit, but mm. I, I mean, at, at my at my high school, the head teacher was called the rector. 
Oh, yeah, I have heard that term for a head, like, head teacher before. Yeah, but I don't know why. No. <laughs> this was a this was a state school in mm. Edinburgh. <laughs> Maybe it was, like, a kind of wrangler? I have absolutely no goddamn idea. My, my no. school had some delusions of grandeur. <laughs> but yeah, so the rector job was open and the house was empty. Now, the next reverend was named Eric Smith. Mm-hmm. And he moved in with his wife, who I couldn't find her name. Mrs. Smith. Well, that's going to have to do, I'm afraid. Yep. Because I, I kind of hate just referring to someone as his wife. Mm. It's, yeah, so Mrs. Smith is going to have to do, I'm afraid. Now, they would actually see some of the pivotal hauntings that would lead to a lot of the investigations. Mm. They would live in the rectory for two years, which they later described as the darkest years of their lives. Why did they stay? Well, I mean, it was it's only two years. That's not very long to live somewhere. No, that's true. I mean, plus, you know, presumably they were working. Yeah. Plus it was kind of a gradual build-up. They suffered some of the usual nonsense, phantom knocking, thudding, and uh, the servants' bells in the house being rung when the only people in the house were the smiths. Yeah. They had difficulty keeping a maid. So, you know, like in, in um, A Christmas Carol where all the bells start ringing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, especially in the fucking Muppet Christmas Carol. That's a scary scene. It is. That's it a very scary scene. And, and then, like, in the book, it describes you can hear, like, the chains dragging up from the cellar, and it's terrifying. Oh, that, like, that story, that those films are really underestimated for how spooky they can be. Oh, yeah, totally. No, I think it's some of the best. And um, what's the other one by Charles Dickens? The Signalman? That's one of the best ghost stories yes, ever. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. That's a great one. Mm. But the Smiths had difficulty keeping a maid. Mm. Now, Mrs. Smith also reported seeing a phantom coach in the driveway, Mm. and the reverend thought he heard someone whisper, don't, Carlos, don't. What? Uh, I don't know who Carlos is. There's no explanation anywhere as far as I could find as to who Carlos might be, but there you have it. So the coachman had also been reported by the bulls, apparently headless, Mm. and he also shows up in Price's accounts. Now, what apparently kicked this haunting into high gear, as opposed Mm -hmm. to, you know, just knocks and thuds and stuff, was when Mrs. Smith found a brown paper package in a cupboard containing a skull Uh, that appeared to be that of a young woman. Oh, boy. This kind of ties into the whole screaming skull story, which is quite a common type of British haunting. Um, If you're you're unfamiliar with screaming skulls, it's um, a a type of haunting where um, typically a skull is, is disturbed either it, it's already in a building and it's removed or it is brought into a building after being discovered and then this mm. leads to disturbances usually poltergeist activity there are lots of stories sort of like this mm. in usually revolving around old british country houses yep love a good screaming skull in an Don't old country house mm-hmm. not complete <laughs> without a screaming skull mhm i mean i um, if i if i could like have a a nice safe legal way to like have a skull in my house. Yeah. I probably would, you know? I mean, I'm sure if you ask one of the members of your family nicely enough when they pass... Now that'd be too weird. Yeah? I, yeah, I, th- I think so. I think that would be too weird. Because you know it belongs to your family. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Fair. But I mean, I guess, I guess all skulls kind of look the same. Yeah. Once the flesh is removed. I mean, not, when I was in... Um, not to derail the conversation even more, but no, when, when, we, when I was in Philadelphia... At the Muta Museum, they have. <gasps> I love the Muta Museum. I haven't they been, have but I love it. The Wall of Skulls. Yes. Which you can actually sponsor. You can sponsor a skull, which I is want very cute. That is cute. Are they the are they the ones that have got signed on them that just say like female idiot? Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. 
which is really something. But they do look different. Like, when you look at the skulls, you're like, these... I mean, I can see that these are all the same kind of structure, but you can see the difference in, like, this person clearly had higher cheekbones, this person had a low forehead, or lower brow ridge. I mean, I guess if you're looking at a lot of skulls close together, but, Mm. you know, outside of that scenario, the situations where you're looking at a big group of skulls all together, usually, I would say, would be quite negative. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the two so, positive ones are like ossuaries uh-huh. and the Muta Museum. The Muta Museum. Other than that, you should be questioning how you got to this point in your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where the hell was I? Oh, yes. Screaming so, skulls. Screaming skulls. Again, a lot of the activity was happening around the Blue Room. We still mm-hmm. don't really have any focus yeah. for the haunting, though. I mean, Mrs. Smith allegedly found the package, but that was pretty much it. Now, the Smiths were understandably unnerved by whatever all this was, and (laughs) they contacted the Daily Mirror in an attempt to get help, because with something like a haunting, that was kind of what people did. Yeah. Because, I mean, who the hell else do you contact? You can't really contact the police. No, I mean, usually you contact like a a priest, but when you are the priest... Well, yeah. (laughs) You're kind of... who Who do you call then? The Ghostbusters. <laughs> the Daily Mirror, apparently. Da, 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 da. Okay. <laughs> we don't have the rights for that. Oh, yeah, sorry, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so they sent a reporter uh, who wrote the, the, the Borley article I was talking mm-hmm. about earlier and an investigator. Now, here we enter our boy, Harry Price. <gasps> our hero. Our, 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 our protagonist. Oh. He's the protagonist of the story. Uh, Harry Price. Now, we'll get into him a bit more later on, but for now, let's satisfy ourselves with the idea of him as, like, an intrepid investigator arriving at Mm. the rectory to get to the bottom of this mystery, you know, Scooby-Doo style. Yeah. Now, Price was a somewhat well-known ghost hunter and investigator, Mm -hmm. with several well-publicised cases under his belt already. Okay. By far the best of these being the tale of Jeff the Mongoose, which I don't have time to sort of go into it, but it is in- that the talking mongoose? Yes, yes. It's it's a it's a great story. Please look it up. <laughs> Tell you what, I will find a way to link in the show notes. Perfect, thank you. I will find a way. Yes, the tale of Jeff the 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 talking mongoose. Yes, which Price had investigated, and he was he was also quite famous for uh, debunking fraudulent. Uh, mediums. He has several. Uh, he, mm. he has a history of that. But again, I'll get into that a bit more later on when we're talking yeah. about price. Now, uh, so the paper arranged for him to come. The moment he arrived, paranormal activity increased. Allegedly, as he entered the door, a brick shattered the roof of the veranda, showering glass down. Oh boy! And in the very same e- uh, evening, we got some more haunted mansion shenanigans um, with mm-hmm. a, a glass candlestick thrown down the main staircase, shattering at the foot. Uh-huh. In the blue room, a cake of soap jumped into the air, apparently completely unprompted. <laughs> and across the house, keys shot out of door locks, which is, hmm. you know, noticeable, but it's your usual kind of poltergeisty yeah. stuff. So the activity kept on going, and on top of it continuing, the house gained a reputation and began to attract unwanted sightseers. Now, Reverend Smith began to fear for his wife's well-being, and in, 19, in 1929, he tendered his resignation and left Borley. Very wise. Yes. Now, finding a new resident was not easy. The house had become somewhat infamous, as you can imagine, and many people feared moving in. But worry not. Our next residents, 
would move in in 1930. And this would be the Reverend Lionel Foister, M.A. Excellent name. I didn't say there's an M.A. there. Uh, from Ca- M.A. from Cambridge, I believe. Uh, his, wa- his wife, Marianne, mm-hmm. and their two-year-old adopted daughter, Adelaide. Okay. So some of the most famous hauntings were going to occur during their occupancy of the house. Right. So let's get into some of those, because now yes, the haunting... Please has a focus. <gasps> we still have the old kind of hauntings. We've got bell ringing, thumps in the night, mm-hmm. the ghostly nun. But the hauntings now centred around Marianne Foister. Uh-huh. Marianne was 31 at the time. Uh-huh. Her husband was 52. Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it's the 30s, isn't it? What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Now, this may count as a spoiler for later, but let's say she was a little bit unsatisfied with her life at the time. I am not surprised. Yeah, okay. I mean, I've, I'm kind of setting up this. It's it's kind of like a bicycle on a Dutch road. You can just watch it coming from miles and miles away. Yep. Just gets closer and closer and close. Now, straight, <laughs> straight away, she noticed some strange happenings and... We're talking about the usual kind of thing again, object movement primarily, mm-hmm. involving her possessions though, oh, which are okay. mostly jewellery. Um, also walking sticks were moved, mm-hmm. books appeared out of nowhere, uh, the kitchen table was violently overturned on one occasion, as were the beds, and the bed linen strewn across the floor from cupboards and drawers. Oh. Once when walking up the stairs to the blue room, Marianne heard something behind her, and turning round she saw an apparition of a man she would later identify as the late Henry Bull. She saw him several more times in her residence at Borley, often wearing a dressing gown and carrying a small case or wallet. It was a bit more violent for Marianne, though she reported being thrown from her bed on several occasions, mm. which is also quite common in poltergeist hauntings yeah. as, they, as they escalate. I'm, I'm seeing uh, paranormal activity. Sure. <laughs> no, just, you know, that kind of famous scene where the, the cover gets pulled back and then she gets yanked out of the bed. That one. Yeah, totally. I was thinking of... um. It was um, the. I mean, the other kind of big British haunted house case I would say is the Enfield Poltergeist, mm. and you know, which also featured um, bedclothes being yanked and, and um, you know, people being pulled out of bed quite a lot. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, hopefully we'll be able to talk about that one soon because that's a great case. It's one of my favourites. Yeah. But yes, so uh, one incident, as reported by Sydney Glanville whose report I used quite heavily for this because he was an eyewitness to quite a few of the events. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was an eyewitness to this one in particular, but this was particularly violent. Mr. Foister was, sorry, Reverend Foister was in the bathroom at 11pm one night when he heard Marianne cry out, then the sound of her running down the hall. He mm-hmm. rushed out to meet her and she said, I had been in the bedroom, meaning the blue room, mm-hmm. and had just come out onto the landing when something hit me in the face and nearly stunned me for a moment. I was carrying the candle but saw no one or anything. This blow had caused a cut under her left eye, which was bleeding. Mm. As a result of this, some, mm-hmm. some nearby friends of theirs, Sir George Sudbury and his wife, insisted that the foisters stay with them whenever the haunting became too intense. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Adelaide the toddler was also attacked by quote-unquote something horrible. Mm. Foister, meanwhile, he tried to conduct an exorcism, mm-hmm. but was unsuccessful. In fact, in one of the attempts, he was struck on the shoulder by a heavy stone. Oh, shit. Yeah, I know, right? It's There's like... a lot of very physical things that are leaving evidence. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. Stuff being moved and then people being struck. Mm. Now, what I would consider the most famous paranormal occurrence in Borley uh, happened to Marianne at this time. 
So, as Price has it, writing appeared on the wallpaper. It was written in a childish hand and appeared about four foot three to four foot eight inches off the ground. <laughs> Allegedly, this writing appeared spontaneously, and while most of it was completely illegible, some of it was easier to make out. Many seemed to have the letter M in them. <laughs> First, written on the wall of the corridor between the kitchen and the sewing room, seemed to say, Marianne, get help, and then something indecipherable. Okay. Marianne replied underneath, writing, I cannot understand, please tell me more. A few days later, new words appeared. Lights, mass and prayers. More writing said, Marianne, please help get, and then more indecipherable stuff. The longest piece of writing appeared on the landing, yeah. which was uh, another hotspot for the written messages, and it said, get light and prayers here something, 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 then maybe his body. Uh. Now, this writing was always in graphite pencil, and it seemed to start out strong and then get a lot weaker, as if whatever was writing them was losing energy as it went. Yeah. Marianne believed that these messages were coming from a young Catholic woman who was identifying with her. Mm. Now, the Foisters lived in the house for five years. It was a big house for a small family. You know, a lot of rooms. A lot of rooms. And I should also mention the house had no modern plumbing. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. No electricity. I feel I could deal with no electricity, but the no modern plumbing would be a real deal breaker mm-hmm. for me, let me tell you. I mean, yeah, presumably they would be using chamber pots. Oh, jeez. I know, it's disgusting. In the 30s? I know, right? It's... <laughs> Come on, guys. The reverend, unsurprisingly, became ill, and the goings-on at the rectory made it quite difficult for him to carry out his duties anyway. Uh, so he decided to retire. The family moved out in 1935, which unfortunately didn't improve his health, and he died quite shortly after retiring. Oh, jeez. Marianne lived until 1992. Oh, wow. The year I was born. Wow. Coincidence? I think not. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, the rectory, meanwhile, lay empty. The new vicar... He secured permission to live elsewhere. He was like, I'm not I'm not fucking loving this. <laughs> yeah. This first wise thing to happen. He was like, yeah, story. no. Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And, uh, I'm cool. But it was unoccupied for 18 months. Mm-hmm. Now, then along comes our boy, part deux. Harry Price came back and he decided oh, he wanted boy. to rent the rectory for himself for 12 months. Now, he didn't want to live there. Wise choice. Rather... He wanted to bring in a team of what he termed, quote-unquote, the right sort of people. And these were 48 people selected via an advertisement in the Times Mm. who would be provided with some instructions, but basically left to their own devices to investigate the ghostly goings-on in the house. Now, these included engineers, scientists, and army officers, but were mostly students. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because... Of course. That's a, that's a great way to gather data, is just... Shove some students. Unle- Actually, I, I, don't know, I don't know what I'm talking about. I would, I would pay to do this. Yeah. I was going to say, it's totally. reminding me a bit of... Is it the film The Haunting? Oh, the bad one, yes. Is that the one I'm thinking of? There was a remake of it with Catherine Zeta-Jones? Yes. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. The Haunting with Katya and... Because The Haunting is a great movie, um, like the original one, mm. and then the remake. Because that's all from The Haunting of Hill House, right? It's the same thing. Yeah, I think it's so. just just iterations of it. Um, so yeah, the original film is great, and then they did a really shitty remake in the nineties. Although all I can think of with, with the original is that like puppeteered skeleton sneaking <laughs> up. <laughs> Please don't talk about that. It's far too scary. <laughs> Terrifying. But yeah. 
So that was kind of what was going on anyway. Mm. These included a woman who was identified as Miss R. She Mm. reported a feeling of indescribable terror outside near the blue room. Mm. Yes. She be- where she became almost stuck to the floor, her hands icy cold and full of pins and needles. Right. Now, a month later, another visitor, described as a psychic, experienced the same thing in the same spot. Did they know about each other? You know, it doesn't say. Mm. Which, uh, we're going to get sceptical mm. after kind of the, the lowdown of what supposedly went yeah. on. We'll put our Shaniac hats on. Absolutely, we shall do that. <laughs> I've always identified more with that line of thinking, TBH. That's fair. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know if they knew, but apparently this is what happened, apparently. So mm. grain of salt, rock boulder of salt, whatever. Salt lamp. <laughs> Delicious, lick the salt lamp. <laughs> Glanville uh, proposed that the numerous paranormal incidents were brought about by the state of sleep. Mm. due to the fact that many of the most significant occurrences took place while people were sleeping and others were awake. Mm. He said, It seems as though energy can be drawn from a sleeping person and used to produce phenomena of different types. Whether this energy is controlled by an entity or simply a spontaneous and uncontrolled outburst is a matter for conjecture. I know. On the 27th of March, 1938, a planchette seance was performed. I found conflicting reports about this. So Price's account says it was performed by Glanville's daughter Helen in South London. Uh Whereas Glanville's report seems to have it happening in the rectory itself. I don't know if this is just unclear wording or ambiguous Mm. wording. But anyway, at the seance... The planchette, which... Uh, do we need a little explanation as to how planchettes work? No, you put your fingers on them and they move. Yeah, basically. So uh, this began to immediately spell out messages, most of it not useful or even intelligible. Mm. But eventually it spelled out two messages from two separate spirits. Now, the first identified herself as Marie Lair, a young French l- nun who left her religious order to marry a member of the Walton family, who owned the nearby Borley Hall. Yeah. She said she was strangled in an older building that stood on the site of the rectory, and her body was either buried in the cellar or thrown down a disused well. Right. The wall writings, it was thought, were her pleas for help. Find, mm. you know, find my body. Uh, mm. Pray pray for me, that kind of thing. Now, the second reported to be from a spirit named Sumex Amures? I don't know if it's Amures or Amores or however you're supposed to pronounce this. Mm -hmm. This spirit claimed that he would set fire to the rectory that very night at nine o'clock. And that when he did so, the bones of a murdered person would be revealed. Oh, jeez. The rectory did not burn down that night, but Mm -hmm. exactly 11 months later, on the 27th of February, Uh 1939, Borley Rectory had a new owner... A man named Captain W.H. Gregson. What a great name. It is a great name. Now, he was unpacking boxes in his new house, you know, probably thrilled to be there, Mm. when he accidentally knocked over an oil lamp. Oh, boy. This started a fire that would burn down the entire building. Shit, son. During the fire, onlookers reported seeing a nun in one of the windows. Oh, of course. Of course. Now, in 1943, Price returned to what was left of the rectory and conducted a dig in the cellar. There, he found the fragments of a human skull including a jawbone with five teeth remaining. Mm. Examination uh, estimated that the bones belonged to a woman of about 30. Price was content this must be Marie-Laire, mystery solved. As an aside, the jawbone also showed signs of a pretty gnarly abscess, Mm. um, and author Peter Underwood proposes this is why the Phantom Nun always looked so miserable, because she had toothache. Yeah, that'll do her. Yeah. How can they tell a jawbone is from a female... I skull. believe 
I believe you can gender bones. But a jawbone? Yeah, I think so. Because I, from what I uh, now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a bone scientist. No. but um, every like episode of fucking what's that show? The uh, Time Team. Yes, that's the one. Thank mm-hmm. you. When they when they find bones, like even if it's not a complete skeleton, they always seem to be able to tell the skeleton's uh, gender. Yeah, they use. I'm assuming it's a kind of we're guessing from like this sign and this sign. It's in it usually like the the shape of the pelvis. I think there's more to it than that. Mm. I always thought that was the main kind of quote-unquote giveaway. Actually, I genuinely don't know. Um, I mean, this so th- this this finding is actually quite dubious anyway, mm. which I'll talk about in a minute. But um, this whole thing is dubious. The whole thing is dubious. <laughs> the, Glad- the the Glanville report says it belonged to the bones of a woman aged about yeah. thirty. I mean, I'm pretty sure you can tell age from. Oh yeah, bones. you can absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Regardless of regardless of um, yeah whether or not you can tell gender. Yeah, it's down to like how many teeth you have or yeah how fused certain things are. I think bone density yeah, as well. Yeah, and how worn like, down your teeth are as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those things will give a pretty uh, clear indicator as to oh, age. Oh, yeah. We, people use dental records to to ID people as well, so... Yeah, yeah, totally. Teeth I are mean, pretty, they, pretty good. This wasn't... I don't think you could... Could you identify someone by dental records in the 40s? Uh, no. Because DNA... Cause a lot of people got away with murdering people... By just getting rid of their hands. I can't remember when dental records became a thing because DNA was quite late. It was yeah. like the late late eighties or something. Yeah, I I'm don't just showing know. my ignorance here. Oh my god, <laughs> how could you? But what we have there is pretty much a condensed version of the story of Borley. Mm. Now, you know there there are other reports of hauntings, and again, I recommend doing more reading on it to kind of get the full story. But it's a good story, right? It is. It's excellent. It's the kind of... It's a good, you know... Quintessential haunted house. That's what I referred to. I mean, in, in definitely in British history, with maybe mm. Enfield as the main competitor, but Enfield lacks the kind of the big, creepy mansion. Mm. You know what I mean? Bolly Rectory is exactly that. It's still a pretty well-known case. Most people with a passing interest in ghosts have at least heard of it. Yeah. And hey, ghost nuns are a thing, again, so I'm sure that kind of bumps its social blade stats, you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, Price himself, he would not live that much longer. He actually died in 1948. Okay. Yes, five years after the bones were found. And so, yeah, his life almost tied in very exactly with the kind of end of Borley Rectory. Mm. But... As you know, I like to look at things cynically. Absolutely. Aha. Uh-huh. And the thing with Borley is that there is an awful lot of counter evidence. Good. This is what I mm-hmm. want. Exactly. And we're going to start by taking a little look at Harry Price himself before we move on to the house. Mm. Oh, by the way, I thought you'd like to know, because I was very quietly typing away here. Oh, please. The first uh, instance of dental records being used uh-huh. was, I think, in 1865. Really? Okay, that mm. is way earlier than I thought. Yeah, it was the first time right. dental evidence was used to prove a murder. I mean, if someone had a very distinct tooth, you'd be able to identify... Mm them that way I suppose. Yeah it says the first forensic doctor in the United States was Paul Revere who is known for the yes. identification identification of fallen revolutionary soldiers. Right mm. okay that's okay that is a lot earlier than I thought. Yeah. Okay so potentially 
I mean, these would have been the bones of someone who was supposed to have died a couple of centuries ago, mm. so you wouldn't really have anything to compare it to, I guess. No, but, but you yeah, could... you could you could identify a recent murder victim. Yeah, absolutely. At, at this point, I'm pretty sure. Huh. Well, ain't that something? Mm-hmm. And you know what? Knowing is half the battle. Da, da, da. Of course. Not going to sing um, the words because then we'll get <laughs> dinged. <laughs> Do we get dinged? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I was going to suggest before we get into my favourite part of the story, all this has just been window dressing. Everything <laughs> I've been saying so far, you might as well just forget everything I've been setting. saying so far. You know why? It doesn't matter. <laughs> None of it matters. Nothing in life matters. Become, <laughs> become a nihilist. Don't believe in anything, kids. It's cool. So, we're going to pull back a bit now, mm. and we're going to take a look at Harry Price. But first of all, why don't we take a little break? I think that's wise. I think this I need seems a... like a good seems like a good midway point. Yeah, I think I need a nice yeah. glass of wine. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Before the spooks. Okay. We'll be right back with you. We'll be back after these messages. It's an awful mess and a bad case of cannibalism. Quote by Master Corporal Bob Bisson. If you want to hear more bad cases of cannibalism and indeed awful messes, make sure to listen to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. Okay, folks, I'm excited to be sceptical. Let's have a look at Harry Price. Now, regardless of what you think of him, he's got a pretty interesting story. Skeptoid, which is a website I use quite a mm-hmm. few times, um, I like Skeptoid. I always, I mean, I always double research <laughs> everything. Um, so I found some stuff that contradicts stuff that they have as mm. well. But they, you know, they've got some really great stuff there uh-huh. when it comes to looking at stuff from a critical perspective. Yeah, which is always important. They refer to him as a bit of a P.T. Barnum, which is great. Oh, what a great phrase. <laughs> which is, you know, P.T. Barnum, pretty interesting guy. I hate that movie. Awful movie. Mm. God, that movie sucked so much dick. I'm sorry, I'm, a- I'm alienating <laughs> a lot. I'm going to be alienating listeners potentially by saying that I hated that movie. Because everyone <laughs> in the world likes that movie. Yeah, um, except you. Except me. I'm alone in my mm. throne of hate. So my editorial stance is that Price was indeed something of a hoaxer. The evidence mm. is pretty darn overwhelming. Uh, here are some of his credentials. So uh-huh. he has proven to be a deceiver in his early life. Facts about his life were a bit all over the place because he kept giving, he kept saying stuff that wasn't true. That that'll do it. <laughs> like yeah, basically, like he he <laughs> lied about his birthplace for. I, I couldn't tell you why. For fun. He claimed to have worked on digs in, in Greenwich Park, actually, huh. that he supposedly didn't work out. Right. And he reported finding a Roman ingot, which turned out to be fake. Like, pretty why? proven fake. That most offensive of all, he was a fucking magician. Okay? Ah. He was a member of the Magic Circle. Yeah. Which is a magician society formed in 1905, which still exists... And which you can mm-hmm. hire magicians from for your corporate event. And you can join, if you're over 18, a magician and willing yeah. to undergo a long application, interview, and audition process. Also, you need references from two established members, which is literally the only thing standing in my the way of my dream of becoming a famous <laughs> magician. Because I don't know two other magicians already. Oh, man. 
Isn't Stephen Fry a member? Oh, probably. I don't know. I remember him doing a series of magic tricks on QI. I, they probably just let him in the bastard. <laughs> you can, also, you can reapply according to the form mm. I filled out up to the point where you have to give the money, which suggests that you could be banished, presumably for... Uh, you know, like that one Arrested Development joke? I, I don't... Oh, dude. No Arrested Development. Oh, it's so good. One of the characters is like a magician, and he gets like mm. cast out for sharing magician <gasps> secrets. And Yeah, I was going to say, that's usually what it is, isn't it? And their thing is... um. Like, the running joke for the magicians is a photo of them holding a sign that says, we demand to be taken seriously. Um, and that, that's, all I could, <laughs> that's all I could think about whenever we're doing about this. Yes. Once you're a member of the of the magic, of the magic circle, um, you can add MMC after your name. Oh. Like, on your business cards and shit. Also, apparently Prince Charles is a member. That doesn't surprise me at all. I'm serious. I went in a whole thing, like, rabbit hole about the goddamn magic circle, <laughs> because... I think I want to be a magician now. How many things have you wanted to be before now? I wanted to be a cat for a bit (laughs) when I was seven and then again when I was 14. Yeah, that's valid. I wanted to be a ballet dancer before my dreams were scuppered by the fact that I can't dance. (laughs) And now I want to be a magician. Mm, I I thought your dreams to be a ballet dancer had been scuppered by your bodacious ass. Thank you. <laughs> also that. Also that. Yeah. Just won't 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 quit. But also the fact that I can't dance. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna say it's like sixty forty. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> now um I'm not saying being a magician makes you a liar in your personal life necessarily. Mm. But I am saying it means you're good at misdirecting people. You're good at cold reading and you're good at theatrics. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Price has a record of doing this. Mm. Like I said before, in he debunked a lot of fraudulent fake psychics and mediums, mm-hmm. uh, which is also a career I'm kind of interested in. He investigated a fraudulent medium named Eva Carrier, who used chewed up paper to imitate ectoplasm. You've probably heard of that trick. Oh, uh, yeah. He exposed a fraud named Frederick Tansley Munnings, who claimed to have a spirit box that would produce the, the voices of a number of deceased historical figures. Was he just real good at impressions? Yeah, basically. Mm. Yeah, that was yeah, basically yeah. all the voices that were coming that were coming out were just loads of Munnings, and he was also mates with several famous debunkers, including Houdini and journalist Ernest Palmer. Yeah, I was going to say when you said he was a magician and also you know uh, debunked psychics, I was like that was Houdini's big thing was that yeah he could recognize the kind of tricks of psychics because they were tricks he was using. But then I'm guessing. This guy then yeah. was like, well, now that I've recognised them in these people, time to use them on other people. Well, you know what they say, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Mm-hmm. Or live long enough to see yourself in the sequel. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> I just had horrible Pacific Rim flashbacks again, I'm sorry. Oh, God, yeah. That's, I mean, Pacific Rim never had a sequel. You're it was right. Just a perfect film on its own. That was just that was just a dream I had yeah, one night. Never happened. And I woke up like, what the fuck was that? Well, <laughs> time to get on with watching my favorite movie, Pacific Rim, which has no sequels. God yeah, it bless. was perfect on its own. And, it was, and Hollywood left it alone. Yeah, they did. I and I respect them for that. Now, <laughs> Price was not above fakery himself. He claimed on one occasion to have acquired uh, Joanna Southcutt's famous box. Mm. Let's leave that there. That 
So, yeah. So, Joanna Southcutt, she lived from 1750 to 1814. Uh, She Uh was a self-proclaimed religious prophetess who claimed she would birth the new messiah. Of course. And she actually gained a considerable number of followers. Yeah. Now, this box was a wooden chest of prophecies which should only be opened at a time of national crisis and in the presence of all 24 bishops of the Church of England. Well, of course. Price claimed to have gotten a hold of the box and he cracked open that cold boy in 1927 in the presence of, of and I'm quoting Wikipedia here, one reluctant prelate, which is <laughs> a comedy in and of itself. It really is. Oh my God. <laughs> and it contained... Nothing significant, a lottery ticket and a horse pistol, which is a pistol a a rider carries at the pommel of the saddle. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, neither Southcutt's followers nor sceptics believe him. And it's it's not really clear whether it was the the real box. I Mm. mean, I'm pretty sure it doesn't contain anything significant either way. But, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a good illustration of his ambiguity. Yeah. He also debunked a spirit photographer named William Hope with two of his mates from the Society for Psychical Research, um, Eric Dingwall, who will come up again later, and William Marriott. <laughs> what? What are you laughing at? I was giggling at Dingwall. Dingwall. It's a perfectly normal name. You know, someone named Dingwall is listening to this and you just brought their <laughs> self-confidence down by... You know, they were at Lizzo levels of self-confidence and you have brought them down. <laughs> wow. Wow. Sorry. It's fine. So, (laughs) for William Hope, um, without Hope's knowledge, Price replaced his photographic plates with new plates with, um, like, a specific marking on them. And when Hope's ghost photos came, they didn't have this mark. So, boom, they were replaced at some point. Mm. Fakes. Now, this caused quite a stir due to the exposure of Hope and other frauds. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a spiritualist... Oh, fucking Doyle. As we know well, who believed in fairies. He did indeed. (laughs) He actually led a mass resignation from the SPR, uh, claiming Mm. that if he continued to write sewage against spiritualists, he would meet the same fate as Houdini, and trying to have his publications removed from circulation. Ooh, yeah, there's a theory that Houdini was offed by... Yeah. Spiritualist, wasn't there? Yeah, pretty much. Mm. Price wrote that Conan Doyle and crew basically harassed him for years. Yeah. And there's a great picture of Price, which was uh, taken by Hope, uh, with a a fake ghost in the background, which, again, Mm. I recommend looking up. By far his best case was Jeff the Mongoose, mentioned previously, because, oh my god. I stan. This is kind of a skim reading of his adventures. I recommend reading his website, and also the book Harry Price, Biography of a Ghost Hunter by Paul Tabori, but yeah. He was, and this is the only time I'm going to borrow from last podcast on the left, because it's a term I really like for this kind of person, a flim-flam man. Uh, yes. Flim-flam is such an excellent word for it's a really the, nice those word. kind of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's too much evidence that fakery was afoot to really ignore it, but I don't think he was doing it to deceive people or to get money, basically. Mm. I think he was doing it because... I don't know. It's. Com- I think he was doing it because maybe because he wanted to believe. Mm. You know. So almost in a way as bad as people who went to psychics or people like Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, kind of. Uh, well, I'll I'll tell you some more, and you can see what you think. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of through the lens of him that we view Borley. Okay. He's pretty much got to be the framing device when you talk about Borley Rectory. Mm-hmm. I'm and I'm not saying he was a bad person. I'm saying pinch of salt, boulder of salt. A Polish salt mine. Yeah. So, let's take a quick look 
at why Borley may have been an invention. Okay. Now, a lot of this following information comes from uh, Skeptoid again, and also essays, uh, as aforementioned by Andrew Clark for the Fox Earth and District Local Historical Society. Mm-hmm. Now, that website I recommend reading very thoroughly. It's got way more detail than I can go into here, um, including a very compelling look at what buildings used to stand on the site. Mm. They're actually using parish records to do kind of a deep dive. I can admit a bit of bias myself. I also kind of want to believe, but it takes a lot to convince me, and there are other c- cases I find. I find the Enfield case, for example, more compelling Okay. than this one. Ball is not one that convinces me very much at all. No, it's it's really ringing me like an episode of Ghost Adventures. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? Like Which I do love, but because I view it as a show where a bunch of adult men go and get scared of nothing. Mm. That's why it's great. Yeah, that and, like, Most Haunted. <laughs> yeah, but th- I also believe that they're acting in good faith in mm. Ghost Adventures. I believe that they believe what they're doing. It's perfectly possible yeah. to, you know, do this and not want to t- deceive people. Mm. Yeah, because there are a lot of people who will willingly deceive people for money or for fame or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I think there are people who do this because they want to believe. Yeah, absolutely. Now... So, first of all, let's start with the stories. Uh, the immured nun that we talked mm. about. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that this happened at the site, or at all, really. Okay. Examples of the exact same story, you know, nun, monk, uh, groom, sexy times, walled up alive, oh, yeah. can be found in Ryder Haggard's book Montezuma's Daughter, and also in Walter Scott's poem Marmion. Now, Montezuma's Daughter was a book that Reverend Bull apparently used to read to his children. Secondly, not only are there no records of the trial or execution of anybody in such a manner, as Catholic scholar Herbert Thurston points out, no order prescribed beheading or immurement as punishment. No, I was going to say, it did seem a little kind of excessive. It's a very inconvenient way of executing someone. Like, Mm. it has occurred to the best of my knowledge, but it's the kind of thing you... I mean, you do it to punish someone, obviously, but it it just seems a bit out of character for yeah. the time and place. And also, it just surely it affects the kind of structural integrity of your building. Well, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. Um... <laughs> But it's it it's it's a it's a good gothic story. I mean, mm. Edgar Allan Poe wrote a story based around it for God's sakes. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's a it's a great story, but it's it's one of those execution methods that there's flimsy evidence of. Like, um, so you know, scaphism is one of the most famous sort of horrible. Mm. Exe- Mm-hmm. So I'm not an expert on this, but uh, apparently there is little evidence that this actually occurred. Mm. You know, partly because well, that's good. <laughs> it would, it would. It's just a massively inconvenient and time-consuming way to execute someone, regardless yeah. of how much you wanted to punish them. You know, what I mean, it's still, uh-huh. it's still a lot of effort. Also, there is the whole thing. I, I mean, I, I think it was a lot earlier than this story, but mm. people were dying literally to be buried in the walls and floors of religious buildings, especially religious buildings with yeah. with um relics in them because yeah. they wanted to be close to them. Yes, so that I mean that could be why you know, that that's that's probably why lots of remains are found in walls and buildings, not mm-hmm. because they were walled up alive. No, um, because they wanted to be there. Because <laughs> I mean you do you. Mm. You do you. I love it. it when from the Romans being like, we're going to bury our dead outside of town, far away from us, 
to the medieval period, just being like, bury me in the walls. Corpses, 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 corpses. Corpses, dance macabre, corpses. I love a good dance macabre. (laughs) Oh, same. But yes, there's also, there's there's no real evidence that there was ever a nunnery or a monastery on the site. By nunnery, do you mean convent? Yeah, I do. I think nunnery is an acceptable word. Is it? It always just sounds like, I don't know, like somewhere where you, where nuns are made. (laughs) I guess... A nun factory, yeah. A nun factory, indeed. No, nunnery is a... We used to play a game in drama class called Nuns in a Nunnery. Like, we, oh, it, okay, it wasn't fair. called Nuns in a Convent. Fair. In valid. which we would sit and pray for 14 years without talking to each <laughs> other. <laughs> but, yeah, so, plus, you know, the whole story is allegedly set around the 14th century when horses and coaches weren't really a thing. No, carts... Carts, yeah. Not as they were reported to appear, anyway. No. Yeah, I was going to say, car- co- coaches mm-hmm. are more of like a, I would say, sev- like late 1600s, early 1700s. Yeah. Type of thing. That kind of coach and groom thing. Yeah. Whereas that, I feel like before it was just, here's your cart. Here is your goddamn cart, now get And here's your that. ass. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> And you were content because life was simple in those days. And mm. we were thankful. Mm. Um, <laughs> and your joy, your prize for surviving it was heaven. God almighty, I'm so glad I lived today. <laughs> Basically, Cart goes into a lot more depth on other legends that likely mm. inspired these ones. Um, his conclusion is that the legends of, you know, Borley were most likely cobbled together from a combination of other local stories, folk tales. Mm-hmm. of which there is a lot, and again, this is all on the website and I recommend you read it, and also stories that Reverend Bull enjoyed, so the result being a gothic tale designed to infuse the newly built house with mystery and remorse. Why? Well, why does anyone make up stories? Um, I mean, the the Victorians were obsessed with, with death and spirituality and romance, romance. so yeah. it makes perfect sense to me. I, it seems... All the stories before the famous encounters with the ghost nun were fabrications. Mm. In the quotes provided by the Fox Earth Historical Society, it seems the family were not in any way alarmed or perturbed by the nun, but accepted her as part of the house. Yeah. Ethel Bull, who was the chief source of the stories, said in 1947, We lived there for many years. We were a large family, and we were happy, and nothing happened. We never knew anything about the nun, and the noises in the house... There were a few noises, but they never disturbed us, and we never thought anything of it. No. And another quite telling thing about Harry Bull, who was one of the greatest proponents of the the ghost stories, one of his Latin pupils, because he taught Latin, uh, commented, Mm. there was no doubt that the rector appeared to be much happier in the presence of the purported ghost than he was in the company of his parishioners. They bored him, (laughs) or most of them did, whereas the ghost stimulated him. Also, we've got to bear in mind a lot of the ghostly encounters that we've come across were rewritten by Harry Price. So, let's look at the garden sighting of the nun again. Now, Price's account, which I more, which I sort of paraphrased earlier, it was asserted to have happened in full daylight, when in fact it took place an hour after sunset, when visibility would be much worse. Yeah. Clark points out Price's account sort of spices everything up. Now, Ethel's story, it's pretty much just barely more detailed than 
a shadowy figure is was seen in the garden at nine o'clock, which is ten o'clock in modern daylight savings time. Okay. And points out Price adds a detail that immediately predisposes the reader to accept a supernatural explanation. The figure was slowly gliding rather than walking along. Yeah. The nuns walk in the direction of the stream. Now, Ethel's account is pretty much, yeah, shadowy figure in black walking along the nun's walk and then running to the house in panic. Price's account is, like, way more dramatic. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. definitely designed to kind of create a, a, a spectacle. Yeah. If you will. Yeah, Harry Price's account has is pretty detached from Ethel's account. Mm, it has drama, darling. Um, and... In, in Ethel's story, there's nothing about the figure's face being visible, for one thing, nor does it mm. say she vanished, you know, kind of fading slowly into the twilight. Yeah. Yeah. And this is from an interview she gave quite a bit later. But this this type of detailing is very pr- typical for Price's accounts. The same article points mm. out that the garden was located on a road well used by foot travellers, mm. which would have been tempting for trespassers, with its orchards and vegetable gardens. It's not... It, yeah. it was a very well-populated road. It's not impossible that people were like, I'm just going to pop in there, take an apple, and then bounce. <gasps> Apple-stealing horse. Apple- <laughs> no, it was, it was lemon-stealing. Lemon it was lemon-stealing horse, but I, I adapted it I'm so, for the story I'm so at hand. I'm so baffled by that clip, and I've seen it so <laughs> many times. Oh, it's amazing, and I love it. <laughs> But yeah, so it could it could have been lemon whores, not nuns. Um, he also point completely opposite. He also points out that many were travellers. We're being sensitive here. I'm not going to say the G word. Mm-hmm. Looking to earn money by plying a trade of some sort, such as knife sharpening mm-hmm. was quite common. Also selling things, usually in summer. Mm-hmm. It's not inconceivable that these travellers, who especially in that time, would be dressed in a manner that would seem old-fashioned yeah might be in the garden looking for business you know i mean just sort of wandered in because apparently it was quite easy to do that mm. yeah that makes sense yeah i mean the author extrapolates from his own experiences sort of pre-1975 when romany traveling tradesmen was still a thing he yeah. says he says it's fanciful but i mean you Occam, occam's razor it dude it's way more likely than a ghost did it you know yeah absolutely but all in all, the, the Bull children were pretty surprised to find out that they'd been living in the most haunted house in England, when what they did experience were a few small quirks, for all mm. intents and purposes. And as for the Smiths, they've since claimed that they left the rectory not because it was ooky and spooky, but mm. because of the shitty plumbing and the overall bad condition of the house. Yeah. Mrs. Smith allegedly did find a skull, mm-hmm. but said it didn't cause ghostly activity. Um, and as we were kind of hit on earlier, bones were not uncommon in the grounds of Borley because no. it was near a churchyard and the area had been affected by the plague. Yeah. As well as the fact that there had been other buildings on the site. Oh, we love a good plague pit. We really do. And it's not strange in places where there are burials for bones to like pop out the ground, especially in wet mm. weather. I have witnessed this myself. Yes. Yeah, human bones coming out of the ground. In Was it Edinburgh? It was in Edinburgh and Greyfriars. Me and my friend found That's a human jawbone when we were just walking around the cemetery. <laughs> just cash. It was very cash. It was a cash Friday. <laughs> I I don't know enough about the area to be like, yeah, finding bones is normal. But skeptics, mm. you know, have made a point of this fact. But it's more important here to get on to Price himself again and also Marianne. So it's important to note there are 
pretty much no written accounts of ghostly happenings at Borley before 1929. Okay. The first article in the Daily... This is what I mean when I say the whole thing is, like, through the lens of Price and his entourage. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the time, he didn't lie per se, but he was not above writing around the truth. Yeah. A really good example of this is the brick incident. So... In Price's second book about Borley Rectory, he published a photograph from a visit he made in 1944 to the ruins of Borley when they were being demolished. This picture is Googleable if you want to see it. Oh, yeah. It depicts a brick sort of suspended in the air, apparently flying out from the kitchen passage on the ground floor, where, as Price pointed out, much of the automatic writing appeared. Okay. Now, this photograph was published with the caption suggesting that, if genuine, this may be the first ever photo of paranormal phenomena in action. Price recalled the incident later, as Mr. Sherman, the photographer, pressed the trigger which operated the shutter mechanism of his camera lens, a brick, or part of a brick, suddenly shot up about four feet into the air into what remained of the kitchen passage, just below the bathroom passage. The three of us saw it, and I said, we were at least a hundred feet away from it. We all laughed and called it the last phenomenon, and said the poltergeists were demonstrating in honour of our visit. We walked over to the passage where there were many bricks lying around. I picked up several and all appeared normal. No string or wire was attached to any of them, and we saw no workmen at all on that side of the rectory. Now, this isn't true. The photograph printed in the book was cropped. Um, In the original Mm. photo, a workman is clearly seen throwing the brick. Eric Dingwall, who is back again, Mm. criticised the photo. And in a letter, Price responded, As for the brick, I will give you £1,000 to any charity you care to name if you can prove it was faked. The other witnesses, who I had met for the first time, had never been to Borley before. We were scores of yards away from the brick. The only possible explanation could be the brick was flung from a long distance, which we did not see, and then it bounced, which we did see, or that Miss Ledsham and Dave Sherman and myself were in collusion. They are still available and would swear in any court of law there was no trickery. Now, the Harriet Price website discusses this incident as well and points out that the wording used by Price indicates he was joking and that he knew full well the brick was not manipulated by paranormal forces Mm. and you know he informs his readers as much but i think we all know he was trying to lead the uncautious reader into thinking yeah it's real nudge nudge wink wink you know (laughs) know what i mean the photographer and other witnesses present when the brick was thrown reported shock at the idea anyone might believe it genuine all present made a joke of it including price being like oh it's a ghost He knew it wasn't a ghost, but he was also smart enough to never actually state it was a ghost, kind mm. of imply it. With, he didn't fake anything, technically, but I think this is, like, a good insight into the kind of work he was doing. Yeah. There are more incidents that seem to be directly fake. Um, if you recall, one of the key features of the haunting during Price's first visit was stones and pebbles being thrown. Mm-hmm. In 1949, after his death, Daily Mail reported Charles Sutton, so I guess grain of salt again, said that while visiting the rectory with Price in 1929, he was hit on the head with a large pebble. Sutton then seized Price and found his coat pockets were full of stones. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's slowly becoming less Zach Bagans and more um, Yvette Fielding and her husband. <laughs> Which is quite funny, because in the original Ghost Adventures documentary from, I think it's from 2004, mm-hmm. that heavily features a brick being thrown. Oh, does it? It does. I recommend looking it up on YouTube. It's like... Uh... It's like vintage ghost adventures. Oh. <laughs> okay, let's think about the excavation again for a minute. Mm-hmm. So the fire, which was caused by the new owner, Captain Gregson, was judged by the insurance company to be arson. Mm-hmm. You know, for the usual reasons one might set fire to one's house money. Yeah. The bones are questionable, 
the two gardeners who dug them up uh, initially identified them as belonging to a pig. Mm. And for this reason, they were refused a Christian burial in the parish of Borley, and it had to be buried in the nearby Liston churchyard. Now, Captain Gregson might have started the fire for insurance purposes, makes the most sense, but bear this in mind. Now, I haven't actually verified this as much as I'd like, but it came up in a couple of sources. Gregson was apparently quite instrumental in getting Price to perform the excavation. Mm. It's definitely interesting to imagine, say, a deal being struck between the two. Gregson gets the insurance money, plus rid of a house that sounds like a total fucking liability. Yeah. And Price gets an ending to his story. Mm, absolutely. That's me projecting a narrative, really. But mm, but it does make sense, and it's also kind of just in time for Price, really. Not quite. Now, the Society for Psychical Research did not believe Borley was a real case. Okay. In 1948... Three members, Eric Dingwall again, Trevor Hall and Kathleen Mary Goldney, began the okay. investigation that was to be known as the Borley Report. Now, this report, which is available to read in its entirety on the Harry Price website, mm-hmm. found that much of the reported phenomena was due to the house and due to the house just being old and kind yeah. of bad. And this is true in like 99% of all supposed supernatural phenomena, you know, drafts, Mm. noises, smells, temperature changes are caused by things like warped wood, doors Mm. hung incorrectly, wear and tear, damp. It was an old house with outdated plumbing. Again, one of the Fox Earth articles goes into a great deal more detail on this, but it's it's a good explanation using the house's physical characteristics and its particular geographic location that I recommend reading. And again, the kind of physical property of the house becomes important for more reasons than iconography. Mm. Now, the automatic writing, one of the main events of the haunting, Uh, is actually based on far weaker evidence than you might think. Uh. So, accounts of the Glanville seances have them performing the planchette writing on rolls of wallpaper. Mm -hmm. It's not 100% clear why. Um, Skeptoid proposes it's because they were the largest rolls of paper convenient, Mm. and that this was then confused into the writing appearing on the wall. Right. The Fox Earth account posits the fact that there were two very young children living in the rectory at this time. Adelaide, the two-year-old uh, adopted daughter of um, the Reverend and Marianne, and also Douglas, who was the son of a lodger. That's right, they had a lodger. Huh. <laughs> who was called Frank Peerless. Mm-hmm. That's another thing, really. There are always loads of people around Borley, um, more than it's easy to kind of identify in a straightforward, condensed telling. Mm. Now, writing on the walls, that's something kids do. It absolutely is. Yes. Much of the indecipherable writing was at kid height as i said before you know Mm. sort of four foot two to four foot seven inches above the ground yeah there were no reports of child ghosts that i came across there was the so-called little man but you know adelaide was also a known scribbler like she was caught scribbling yeah (laughs) and as fox earth points out though the legible messages marianne please help get etc were written at roughly Marianne's height. Mm. Now, the accounts of this are kind of knotty. There are inconsistencies with Marianne, from Lionel Foister, who kept sort of diaries of it, from other witnesses, including the church warden's nephew, who was named Edwin Whitehouse, and who Marianne sort of accused of doing the writing later. But yeah, there's conflicting evidence as to who was present when what writing appeared and when. Yeah. Samples of the writing, when submitted to a graphologist, were found to be in Marianne's handwriting. Huh. You can see these for yourself, and there are photos and reproductions of them uh, online. Mm-hmm. 
And here we can't really go any further without talking about Marianne again. Yeah. <laughs> now, she was identified by several people, including Price, as being responsible for faking some of the events. And later in her life, she admitted as much. She said she'd seen no apparitions and the noises she reported could easily have been natural. Mm. And it's also a fact that Marianne was not happy at the rectory. She admitted to having an affair with Peerless the lodger. Yep, that does not surprise me. Well, quite. The moment you mentioned him, I was like, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it doesn't take much to imagine why she might want to fake uh. supernatural events. Yeah. So the wall writings primarily occurred actually during her affair with Peerless. So mm. distraction, maybe? Maybe, yeah. Or an expression of her frustration at being in this shitty house with her old husband and a two-year-old child. Maybe thinking if she gave the ghost hunters something, it would improve the situation, make it more interesting, or make them go away even. Yeah, absolutely. It's been suggested that she could have even been sleepwalking when she did it. We don't know. Mm. There's a lot more to Marianne's story that Again, there just isn't time to cover. I recommend Fox Earth again for further information. Or The Most Haunted Woman in England by Vincent O'Neill. Ooh, okay. But basically, Marianne confessed some pranks, some fakery, and feeling a certain level of dissatisfaction in her life. So we're, we're pretty much like at the end of the story here. Again, I've only really given you the bones of Borley. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more out there. Yeah. There's a lot more out there. I've given you the timeline, the famous hauntings, and then a look at Maybe that's not what happened. Yeah. But I think ultimately it comes down to what you believe. Like some people say there's no smoke without fire and that Mm. such a high concentration of stories must mean something. Lots of stuff hasn't been explained. But for me, the the bones in the cellar, the automatic writing, the fire, it's too neat. It's too cinematic, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's why people love it. People love a good ghost story. I love a good ghost story. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, but Bull is gone now, so I guess we'll mm. never know. We can't prove anything. We can't prove anything. It doesn't stop people from visiting the site where it used no, to not be, at all. and even from claiming sightings of ghosts. And mm. in lieu of the rectory existing, hauntings have apparently been reported in Bully Church to this very day. Huh. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Guess the ghosts just moved. Just got bored and went somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, as I as I kind of hinted at earlier, yeah. the whole thing of once one person says there was I saw ghosts or I felt weird in this area, yeah. it's almost guaranteed that another person will then go, oh well, I also felt weird in this area. The event fielding, yes. Mm. You have one family going, well, we had this then it's almost guaranteed that the next family will go, oh, well, we saw this as well, because we're looking for it. Oh, yeah, we totally felt that. Yeah. The moment you know something is supposed to happen in an area, you will then start thinking, well, why is it should be happening to me? And then accounting whatever's happening to that cause. I mean, there were always sort of too many people around Mm. for it to be any kind of watertight investigation and yeah i mean with ghost investigations you can only really test for stuff that you know is real which would yeah. be fake which would be fakery and i don't know how much they were keeping an eye out for things being fake because you know a lot of the people who apply the, the 48 people who applied to do the research mm. i'm pretty sure they would have wanted to believe <laughs> oh absolutely yeah you know, so or at least wanted to create results for price. Yeah, and that's a bias in research. Hmm, absolutely. But again, I'm quite biased and 
looking at it, so... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're always going to approach things like this with your own preconceived bias. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts on Borley that you didn't have before? Um... I I mean, I definitely am now looking at it much more sceptically. I mean, I didn't know a whole lot about it beyond it being, you know, the most haunted building in England and it having a nun attached because of that fucking terrible film that I watched that I told you about. Oh, God, yeah, I know. But yeah, I I, I definitely am looking at it with that, that Shaniac sceptic <laughs> hat on. Got my sceptacles on. <laughs> Hey. hey, I I think it's an excellent story though. It's a great story. It's like as I said, it's the quintessential ghost story. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's got everything you could want from one. It's the haunted mansion. It's it is the haunted mansion. Mm, absolutely, it's certainly got enough ghosts happening. Oh yeah, totally. Nine hundred ninety nine happy haunts, hey. and they're like, there's room for a thousand, and I'm like, take me with you. Take me. I'll ballroom dance The Haunted Mansion's great It's so good I love it so much But yeah, I think, as you said, that brings us to to the end Pretty much Well, not the end of Ghosts, though (gasps) No Because the next episode will be covering more ghosts Mm -hmm. Along with some other dark happenings Yes, it's your turn this time It is, Mm -hmm. and it's on my turf, kind of Ooh Whereabouts are we talking, or is that too much? We're talking London. (gasps) Okay, 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 okay. We're talking London ghostings. Good. I mean, there's so you could do a whole podcast just about London in and of itself. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, that'll be exciting. Mm. Mm. And it's a thing. It's hauntings in an area that is very heavily travelled. Wonderful. Mm. Very good. But to find it out in a little bit more detail, you will have to join us next episode. You will have to join us next episode. And mm. yeah, we've hopefully sooner than <laughs> this one. <laughs> we've, but we've, we've got some pretty good ideas, like mm. in the pipe. Like, um, I've already started work on my next one, which is completely different. Excellent. Love it. And now for something completely different. <gasps> Perfect. Uh, I hope you're being spit roast by some grannies. I beg your absolute pardon. Oh, you meant you meant in the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sorry. like being cooked, yeah. being cooked, Katrina. Look, you. Oh God. But yes. With that, we will bid you good night. Good night. Don't let the creepy little old man who raises one arm in an <laughs> ambiguous Nazi salute slash dab bite.